This is Truth in the Fog, a podcast. I'm your host, Bill Nyman. Um, so this podcast, I would like to continue actually with uh, with looking at uh, the existence of God, who God is. And last time we, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, God as, as triune and uh, what makes him different from all the other gods that are being professed all over the world. So, and I want to continue that um, because the Christian God is, is so much different than uh, any other God that is professed, either by the Muslim or by the Hindu uh, or by other um, cults, for instance, who actually um, create a God um, and create them the way uh, they would like him to be, so to speak. Uh, that's different from, of course, uh, the biblical God. So what do we mean when we say that God is a, a personal God? So many religions who worship a deity deny that their God is personal, meaning a God who genuinely desires a relationship with his creatures. So generally, their deity is far too removed from creation to be bothered with genuine feelings for his creatures. And, and feelings, I use that in quotation marks here. Um, uh, but you know what I mean. The thing is, for instance, if we, if we talk to a, a Muslim who, and we talk about Allah, and who is that God? Who is Allah? And um, is he personal, meaning that he, he is he genuinely interested in in a in a uh, reciprocal relationship, so to speak? Um, what do we mean by that? Um, or is he too far removed, either to to be bothered or to want a personal relationship with his creatures that he actually cares for his creatures, looks after his creatures, and so forth. Um, so the God of the Bible is, is different. He created people with personal characteristics. An impersonal God could not create a personal being. So God himself must be personal as well. And see, so what makes us different as human beings, so to speak? Um, so we reflect something or someone, right? So and we reflect our creator. Uh, we reflect our maker. And, and we are personal beings, meaning that we have personal characteristics. So, of course, it stands to reason then that God, who created us, must also be personal. He has personal characteristics. When speaking of God's personal characteristics, there are dangers, though, that we need to avoid. And one of the dangers is that when we try to talk about God's character, we tend to veer into the abstract. And so it's very hard for us as or for theologians to speak of God in, in, and mention his personal characteristics and not, not, not go into the direction of, of uh, also of um, a, 
a being who is too removed, actually, right? So there are there are two dangers. One is it, it's the characteristics are abstract, and these characteristics are are human, but then to a greater degree. So that is the other danger, of course, that we describe the character of God in human terms, meaning that if we describe a God, uh, or describe to God a characteristics that we have, uh, we describe God's characteristics as human characteristics, but d- then to the nth degree, right? When we speak of God's attributes or characteristics, however, we must remember that these attributes are not part of, of his being. God is not made of parts. And theologians would say God is simple. He's not uh, not simple-minded, but simple, meaning not made up of parts. For example, God does not have wisdom. He doesn't have wisdom. He is wisdom. He is wisdom itself. In that regard, we can say that God is perfect. Now, by perfect, we mean in full measure. In other words, when we describe God's wisdom or love, we mean that God's wisdom and love are perfect or in full measurement. No more wisdom or love can be added. Um, This, of course, differs from our attributes that are far from perfect. Having said this, however, There are attributes that we possess that reflect, albeit dimly, the divine attributes of God. Okay, so when we talk about wisdom, wisdom can be attributed to humans as well. So can love. It's the difference is that we have wisdom and that we have love. We aren't wisdom itself, we aren't love itself, but we possess something of wisdom, possess something of love. So there are characteristics and attributes that reflect the divine being. The characteristics that have traces of human characteristics are, are, are called communicable attributes. God's love and God's knowledge are two examples of these attributes. Characteristics that can only be found in God and are not in any way present in humanity are called incommunicable attributes. God's independence and infinity are two examples of these attributes. Now let's just look at God's communicable attributes first. And let's just see. Uh, This is not, uh, I will not uh, belabor the point and I will not um, mention all these communicable attributes, but I'll mention a couple. So let's just start with God's love, because of course love is 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 a a popular term um, in our contemporary culture, and uh, we say that God is love. And what does it mean when we say that God is love? Uh, it's one of His communi- uh, communicable attributes, because human beings reflect somewhat um, of this attribute as well. So. Often, though, when we describe God's love, it goes something like this. We are capable of loving 
And so God loves too, but to a greater degree. His love is just infinitely greater. That's not exactly how you must describe God's love. It's not only that God loves, although that's true, but more than that, He is love. And 1 John 4, 8 says that very, very clearly. Every other characteristic, therefore, must be viewed in light of God's love. So God loves with a love that can only be ascribed to God. God is essentially love, which means that love and God are synonymous. Like, like John says, God is love. And see, um, when we say God is essentially love, meaning that the love of God is an essential character of God. We cannot, uh, we cannot separate the two. We cannot have God and not love. You know what I mean? So um, God is, is, in his essence, he is love. So when we say that God is love, we also mean that God has always been love. God's love is eternal. He loved before he created everything. There wasn't a time when God did not love and God, God began to love, so to speak. No, when we say God is love, that is the eternal God has always been a love. So the concept of the concept of love does not determine what God is, but God determines what love is. And therefore we can say that all other characteristics such as justice, wrath, mercy and grace must all be viewed through love. Practically, this means that when God disciplines his, his children, right, he disciplines out of love. If he administers justice, he does so through love. Even when he carries out his wrath, he does so through love. This also means that no evil will ever be part of God. So even if we don't understand the things we go through and we feel that we are treated unfairly by God, we must realize that unfairness cannot be part of God. So we might not understand why God treats us in a certain way or why we go through difficult time, uh, through a difficult time, but we must remember that God loves us unconditionally. He cannot love otherwise. That's very important for us to understand who God is uh, through love. So the expression that God is love makes so much more sense when we understand that God is triune. It is not only that God loves his creation, but also that God has always loved even before he created. So when we say that God is love, we admit that he loved before he loved us, and he remains love forever. So when God 
is love, we assume that there is an object to love, obviously, right? The object of love is himself. At first, this sounds rather odd and narcissistic. He loves himself. Like, we, we, we generally don't talk in those terms, right? It would be just that if God were not triune or existed in three persons. It, so it, it would be just to say that, that he would be narcissistic. So if we deny God's trinity, God being three in one, right, but affirm that God is love, really, we in essence are saying that God is a narcissist, right? So because there is no object other than himself. But if he is <clears throat> he's made up of three personal beings, Father, uh, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? then we understand how that love works. When we understand that God is triune, we understand the object of affection, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. True love, or divine love, requires a recipient who loves in return. The Father loves the Son, who loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son in return. You see what I mean? So it's kind of like it's going around and around and around. Right? But there is an object, an, an object to love and an object to um, return that love. Right? It would be rather odd if we, or impossible really, if we would love and it, it, the, uh, the object that we love cannot love in return. That's not true love. Right? Um, so this also means that God did not create because he was in need of love or was lonely. All right? He has never been lonely and he never craved love, so to speak. So he created out of his abundance of love. All right? So what was God doing before he created the, the, the universe. It's always one of those questions. What was God doing before he created? Well, God loved. <laughs> it's that simple. God loved himself, meaning God loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Father loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Son and the Father, and so forth. All right? So, um, So he created out of, out of abundance. In, in, in other words, he wants his creatures to share in the love that God experiences and has experienced from eternity. And so when we love someone unconditionally, and, we, and, and, the, and, and the object loves us unconditionally in return, we somehow reflect the divine being. All right? So, 
Um, we are not created as the other creation myths would, would have us believe because God needs us. God created us because he wants us and he wants us to love him. Okay, so that's, let's just now talk about another uh, communicable attribute of God and that is God's knowledge. We can fall into the same trap when describing God's knowledge as we do when we describe God's love, characterizing his knowledge as a human category. We know things, so God knows things as well, but to a greater degree. Again, we cannot describe God's knowledge this way. God is not some kind of superman with human characteristics, but only to the nth degree. We must always remember that God is different from his creatures. And this is called the creature-creator distinction. Right? We acknowledge, we, we, we must, must understand that we, as human beings, acquire knowledge by studying and by experience. And we gain knowledge incrementally or bit by bit, right? A small child knows very little. It has learned a lot in his short life. He, he slowly learns from the parents and then from the teachers. And by the time he's an adult, he has required a fair bit of knowledge. He could even be an expert on things. But he's not an expert immediately. He has, he, has acquire, he has to acquire that. So God does not acquire knowledge that way. God's knowledge is identical to who God is. He is knowledge. And this sounds rather complicated, and we have a difficult time wrapping our minds around this. But practically, however, this has enormous implications on how we view God. By saying that God is identical to his knowledge, we understand God to know what is best. So we often feel that we know what's best for us and we question God's intentions and ways. And You see how silly that actually is, right? To actually question God's motives and God's knowledge as if God wouldn't know. That, that's, that's blasphemy. That's, we, you, you, you cannot even... It, it, is, it, is like, it is like a five-year-old questioning his 35-year-old or 40-year-old father or his 65-year-old grandfather and telling him he doesn't know nothing. Right? What does he know type of thing, right? That's just as silly. Um, so um, by saying that God is identical, then we understand God to know what's best. And we often feel that we know that, and that that's why we question God's intentions and ways. And once we realize that God is knowledge, then we must admit that it is only God who knows what's best for us and for the world in which we live. 
right? Okay, so um, let's just, just move to God's incommunicable attributes. Uh, just like I said, there's only two, um, two attributes uh, that I talked about, communicable, uh, but there are more, right? But let's just, just you, you, you get the idea. Right, so God's incommunicable attributes, so God's perfection and infinity. Let's just talk about those two. So God possesses attributes that make him different and sets him apart from his creatures and his creation. So God's independence and infinity as incommunicable attributes give us a sense of God's magnificence and his total self-sufficiency. As we have seen from the communicable attributes, God has characteristics in common with his creatures, but we must keep in mind that he, has, that he is totally separate from his creation as well. So God's independence shows that he is not dependent on anything outside of himself. His creatures are totally dependent on him. But God is not dependent on his creatures. God enjoys perfection within himself. So in other words, God is a necessary being. And his creatures are contingent beings. Meaning that we depend on God, but God does not depend on anything outside of himself. His infinity points to that as well. When we hear of God's infinity, what comes to mind is that God exists forever. Now, that's true, but there's more to it than that. God is not limited by anything, right? We can apply this term to various aspects of God. Firstly, when we apply his infinity to his being, we can say that God is pure perfection, he has unlimited knowledge, unlimited wisdom, goodness, and love. Secondly, when we apply his infinity to time, we can say that God, unlike humans, is not limited by time. God stands above time. Thus, for him, there is only eternal present. And that's something that we have to kind of unpack. What does it mean that for God, there is only e eternal present. So plants, animals, are, and even stars are born, age, and die. Okay, the first words we encounter in the Bible are stated like this. In the beginning, God created, in Genesis 1.1. Now, the word beginning is a time-bound word. Usually when things have a beginning, they also have an end. Thus, creation and its creatures, including us, are time-bound beings. We are finite. So God is not time-bound. Only when he chooses to be. Okay, and, and, and in, in a, in a um, later podcast, we will talk about that a little bit more. Now, this is somewhat of a difficult concept for us to grasp, but because we are so used to the notion of time. 
every statement that we make has an element of time attached to it. We plan our days, we look forward to events, and we frequently worry about tomorrow. So God doesn't have any of that. As a matter of fact, he created time all the while existing outside of time. And so Genesis 1, the creation story, is also the beginning of time. And then God set, sets the boundaries of time. And see, that's why in day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, see, these are time-bound uh, phrases, meaning that God, when he created, he also created time. So what are the practical implications of God's infinity applied to time? So for creation, there are several that we have already mentioned, and there will be an end to our existence one day. We, as finite beings, do not know what will happen to us from one minute to the next. We don't know what the future holds. God, who is infinite, does not have an expiry date. There will never be an end to his existence. Further, he knows the future. As a matter of fact, he stands above time. He sees beginnings from their ends. And see, so it's just standing there and, and, and seeing, right? Seeing you in a particular time period, but he also sees the past, what happened before that, and he sees the future. But to him, that is all present, right? To him, there is no such thing as future, because that's a time-bound uh, time term. Past is a time-bound term, right? He sees what is, in other words. So he knows when we are going to die. He knows when we are going to marry and who we are going to marry, and he even knows our kids and grandkids. He even knows when the world is going to end. Nothing surprises him. So it's a comfort to know that we have a God who knows what's going to happen from one minute to the next. And who doesn't need to worry about the things that catch us off guard. So if, if God is knowledge, right, as we have, have talked about in its communicable attributes, right? So if he knows, and God is infinite in time, meaning he doesn't, he's not time-bound, and he wants what's best for us, and he sees beginnings from the end. So wouldn't you rather than, than rest in the fact that God knows what's going to happen and God has our best interest in mind? That doesn't mean, right, that we're going through all good things because he wants us to go through all good things. And the good is determined by our standard, right? No. Um, but God knows that this is good for us, and this gives glory to him. 
And so rest in the fact that he knows, even though we might not like it, it is something that he already has foreseen and already knows the answer to. Right? So that's the practical implication. And thirdly, when we apply his infinity to space, it means that he is present everywhere and that he fills every point of space, space without being bound by space. And we call that God's immensity. This might all sound unduly academic, but these characteristics or attributes can give us a good idea what God really is. On the one hand, God is a personal being who is very much interested in his creation and who desires to interact with his creatures on a personal level. On the other hand, God is not like us, bothered by limitations and human frailties, but he's utterly trustworthy, perfect, and in control of everything that is happening in this world.